0: Um, In the past few days, the past week or so, a suicide prevention net at the famous Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco has finally been completed. The net has been installed around uh, 95% of the structure. Around 2,000 people are known to have jumped from their deaths from the bridge since it's opened in 1937. Kevin Hines is one of only 40 people known to have survived the fall after attempting to end his own life in the year 2000 at the age of just 19. He's since become a world-renowned suicide prevention advocate and mental health activist and was one of those who campaigned for the net. I caught up with Kevin recently and he shared with me his remarkable story in his own words. I do just want to add that before we play the interview, this is a conversation discussing topics that some listeners may find upsetting and triggering. Kevin, welcome to Weekend Breakfast. It's it's incredible to have you with us. I think I first heard about your story maybe even 10 years ago, maybe more. And I felt um, a, a, a connection to you in that I was somebody also, who also had dealt with mental health that had brought me to the point of wanting to take my own life. And I often talk about it for many years as being my default position. If things ever get that bad, I can always just end it. And it took me a long time to realize that not everyone feels that way. I wonder if you can just give us a little bit of the backstory about Kevin up until the point point that you found yourself standing on that bridge in September, 2000.
1: Absolutely, and Sarah Jane, so nice to meet you and, uh, and, and talk to you here on your show. Uh, Cape talk. Um, Well, uh, many people don't know this, but I was born in abject poverty. I was born in the Tendlon district of San Francisco, the worst neighborhood there then, the worst neighborhood there today in San Francisco. And I was born to birth parents who after they had me and my brother, 10 months apart, he was 10 months older than me. After they had us, they succumbed to hardcore drugs and alcohol, substance use issues. And because of that, they would leave me and my brother unattended day by day, night by night to go do score and sell drugs. That was our life. And they would leave us lying on a box spring for a mattress over a concrete slab floor. And had we have fallen to that concrete slab floor as infants easily would have cracked our heads open and died. Had we have touched the dangerous drug paraphernalia, sharp metal objects on the bed could have killed us until one day one motel clerk made his most unseedy decision heard our screams and cries and called the police and child protective services. And they came in and they swooped us up and they placed us in foster care. And we bounced around from home to home with one idea that my brother and I were going to be adopted together. But of course that's not what happened. We bounced around from home to home because of neglect in some of those homes. We both got bronchitis and my brother died right near me. He my only full-blooded brother. His name was Jordash, and, and he was gone. And uh, I had bounced around to five, 10 homes before I would be taken in by Pat and Debbie Hines and adopted and made their son. And what they say about a, a child who is taken away from its biological mother is that they have akin to brain damage from that separation. You have to understand that separation happened for me at least five or more times. So uh, I was at a deficit right there. But unlike my poor brother, I got very, very lucky, and Patrick and Deborah Hines found me and saved my life. And growing up in that household, it was a loving, caring, empathetic, giving, generous household uh, only because of how hard Pat and Debbie had worked to make it so. Nothing was ever handed to them. They they had, they did the hard work. My ber- my father, Patrick, who adopted me, his parents had substance use issues, primary alcoholism. They would die of liver failure, cirrhosis at very young ages. Nine of his family members would die of liver, fa- liver failure, cirrhosis, alcoholism at very young ages. And my dad, uh, he had... Probably about seventeen dollars in his pocket to make to make his way in the world, left with nothing and no one, and he made a life for himself and and went from the gutter to being one of the most prominent San Francisco bankers of his time. And Debbie Hines was a nurse, forty nine year nurse, uh, just retired recently. She said every nursing position you can possibly fathom, and they together adopted three kids from three separate homes into one family, making this melting pot of the family. I, of course, am very mixed. My birth father, Martino, was half Mexican and half Italian. My birth mother, Marcia, was Jamaican, Black, African, Airwalk, Indian, Portuguese, Scottish, Irish, English, and Sephardic Jew, if you can believe it. And my dad, Pat, and Debbie were white. I was mixed. My brother was Black. My sister was white. And I always say the people looking at us were confused. <laughs> and, you know, uh But the bottom line is we had a beautiful childhood and adolescence. And at at about 18 years of age, uh, pardon me, 19 years of age, it all came crumbling down. I began to have fits of extreme paranoid delusion. I began to hear auditory and have visual hallucinations. My brain began to break. I would have manic episodes where I skyrocketed into euphoric, manic natural highs caused not by recreational drugs, but caused by the mislining chemistry in your brain. And I crashed into a dark abyss of depression every week. And this led me to go to the Golden Gate Bridge you see behind me and attempt to die by these two hands from what I term to be lethal emotional pain, the common denominator of how and why we lose people to suicide. And now, as a part African guy, I know that in Africa, mental health is looked upon in a very different way. Um, and, and it's, and it's in, in, in some sections of Africa, it's not accepted as even real. And that, that's something that needs to change. Your brain is an organ just like every other organ in your body, and it too can become diseased. And if your brain is struggling, if your brain is in essence malfunctioning, there goes the rest of you. If you don't understand it, your gut microbiome houses and creates all of your body's and brain's serotonin and dopamine affecting your mental well-being. If you're eating only processed foods from birth, you're damaging your brain's functionality at the cellular level. And I say this because my birth parents fed me only what they could steal when they had me, Kool-Aid. Coca-Cola and sour milk was my diet from birth. I was by definition mentally ill from the very beginning of my life.
0: I just want to ask you on, on the front of and, and we'd spoken just, just before we came um, and, and began the interview. And for those of you who are just joining us, uh, and you're watching, who's SJ speaking to today? Well, I'm speaking to Kevin Hines, who is an American suicide prevention speaker who attempted to die by his own hand by jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California, at the age of 19 in the year 2000. You'll hear how it was that I am speaking to him today in just a moment. I wanted to ask you, um, Kevin, about that separation from your biological mother. How, you know, I I spoke to um, a psychotherapist once upon a time who specializes in um, adoption and addiction and pre-verbal trauma. And he explained to me the reason why so many adopted people, when they grow up to become adopted adults, have suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, why we are four times more likely to try to take our own lives. And he described that moment of separation, which we come to term as the primal wound, as life threatening, feeling to that small child, that small baby, often pre-verbally, that what is happening to them is life threatening. How much of that do, do you relate to into then your, your, the mental health issues that then developed?
1: I relate to it all. Let's let's put it on a pin. When they take chimpanzees, baby chimpanzees, away from their mothers upon birth, they have akin to brain damage. Uh, when they when they when they actually do brain scans, um, when they do that to a, a, a child, it's the same thing. Uh, and and I grew up uh, in this beautiful household, wonderful family, the Heinz family, uh, giving family, caring family, uh, unconditional love is what existed in that household. Uh, but as an as a young adult. It all came crashing down. Um, and I can tell you this, my whole life, I had a pit in my stomach, a pit right here, an empty void from not knowing my birth family, from not knowing what ethnicity I was till I was at least 27. It was very frustrating to have people come up to me and say, oh, you must be what I am. Oh, you must be this, you must be that, but not, no, nobody knowing um, until I finally found out. So I had this void in my, in my, in the, in my chest. And, and, and it absolutely played a pivotal role in me leaping off the Golden Gate Bridge because I felt alone. I felt without a house. I felt that I was not worthy of my birth parents' love, when in fact, I didn't realize uh, until later on that they actually fought for custody of me for in a two-year battle against Pat and Debbie Hines. Uh, but they were unfit to be parents. They were on drugs and alcohol. They couldn't take care of myself and my brother. Um, and it turned out that my birth father, outside of the court hearing, during the, the two-year period, had accosted or assaulted an undercover police officer. My dad was looking for drugs, and he assaulted the officer, and the officer uh, killed him. Um, and, and that's where, you know, my birth mother was heard to have come to the hearing, and say, Patrick, Deborah, I can do this no longer. Please take care of my son. She eventually forfeited custody of me, which was the best thing she could have ever done for my safety and well-being. But even so, I grow up, I get to be 17, have a complete mental breakdown, and by 19, I leap off the bridge you see behind me um, because of lethal emotional pain, but because in, in great part that I lost my identity. I never had it and I didn't know who I was, and I didn't get the chance to be with my birth mom uh, for, the, for, for that beginning stage of my life because she was so unwell. Uh, she's a beautiful woman, Marcia Silvera, um, and, and she's, she's long past, uh, very tragically. But I never got to, I never got to go and do the one thing I wanted to do my whole life, which was to find my birth mom, specifically my birth mom, and say three words, I love you. It's all I wanted my whole life. And she passed on before I could do that. Uh, But here's the silver lining. I learned that I had a half brother and a half sister I didn't know I had. She had a family before mine and I met them. And now I've met a great many of the extended family. And these are incredible, beautiful, loving, caring, gorgeous human beings um, that are every shade of brown of you that you can imagine. And they're beautiful people and they love me dearly and I love them unconditionally. And that might be weird for my adopted family, but it really is the truth because they made me, they created me. And uh and and when you meet your blood, it's a lot different than uh than when than when you just know someone who who took you in and made you their son, which is gorgeous. That's beautiful too. But uh there's something to be said about the blood connection, um, because I can tell you this. My brother and sister, we have the same mannerisms. We leave the same kind of silly voicemails uh, that are long winded. Like, it, it, there's so much similarity. And we never grew, and we didn't grow up together. It's wild. Um, my brother, I'm very upset with my brother. He's a lot more handsome than I am. I'm it's nodding just- along
0: furiously, and people who who are, who are long time listeners of the show and who've read my books will will know the story of my reunion with my biological father and my and my siblings. So that's why you can't see, folks, but I'm nodding along furiously as, as Kevin explains his his connection <laughs> with his with his biological family and and siblings. I wanna take you to that moment, Kevin, that you find yourself standing on the Golden Gate Bridge and and, and just for time, I wish we had time to explain that the woman who asked you to take a picture, but folks, you can go and watch interviews that, that Kevin has done where he will explain um, the, the, the moments proceeding. I wanna take you to that moment where you take that step off the Golden Gate Bridge and your feeling of instant regret.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. Instantaneous regret for my action and the absolute recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life and it was likely too late. How too late? 99.9% of the people that have leapt off the Golden Gate Bridge, it's been too late. They're gone. I got to live. I get to be here. I hit that water at 15,000 pounds of pressure But I survived. A sea lion came to my aid, kept me afloat in the water, until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me, this is that sea lion right here. This is Herbert, the sea lion, on my shirt, um, and I am so blessed to be alive. And I do believe it was a miracle that saved my life. I do believe God saved my life that day. How else do you account for a sea lion bumping me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me? How else do you account for a back surgeon that was the that performed a back surgery that at the time was the first and only with particular time. He invented it for my situation. It had never been done before. He has subsequently done that surgery on 13 more Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors, saving their lives. So it set a precedent. I get to be here. It's a gift that I get to exist. We all have a one in 400 trillionth of a chance to be birthed into this world. Did you hear me? You have a one in 400 trillionth of a chance to simply exist. That means we're never meant to die by our hands. It means suicide is never the solution to our problem. Suicide, uh, suicidal ideations are the greatest liars we know. And I promise you, my friends, in Africa, suicide does not take the pain away. It only makes it impossible for things to ever get better. I learned that the hard way, so you don't have to.
0: I lost a brother to suicide, and people... People would say two things. One, they would say, "Well, it's okay because now he's not in pain anymore." And I'd say it's not okay because I don't have a brother anymore. And then the other thing that people would talk about was was cowardice. Um, And they would frame it slightly more kindly than that, but they would talk about the cowardice of of taking of taking one's one's own life. Um, Do you ever look back on that day and think about the what ifs, or do you not? now that you are we are 23 years down the line do you ever think well what if there hadn't been that that sea lion which I think you thought was a shark there's a great story guys go please go and listen to a podcast or an interview with Kevin where he talks about how he found out that it was a sea lion and not a shark it's beautiful do you ever wonder what what if or do you not allow yourself to go into that space
1: So first of all, for everyone who wants to hear more of this story, just go to youtube.com slash Kevin Hines. 800 plus videos, all designed to better your brain, mental, mind, behavioral, physical health and well-being. Uh, I don't think about the what if. Uh, I think about how. How can I look to the living and move forward? How can I look to the people that are around me now and make sure they understand that even though I live with chronic thoughts of suicide, they'll never kill me. I'll always tell the truth. I'll always ask for help. And that means every time I'm suicidal, I do two things that can be taught and that can be learned. Number one, I find a mirror, any mirror, anywhere. I say my thoughts do not have to become my actions. They can simply be my thoughts. They don't have to own, rule, or define what I do next. Thus, I never have to attempt again or die in the first place by suicide, even though I think about it thousands of times, and I've done so since the year 2000 till today. Number two, I find someone, anyone, anywhere. I turn to them, whether I know them from Adam or not. I say four simple but very effective words. I need help now. The difference between me and someone who dies by suicide or attempts is that I don't stop saying I need help now as my shorthand until somebody is willing to answer the call. Usually it's my lovely wife, Margaret, but I have been at the Atlanta airport in a suicidal state of mind, gone up to a TSA agent told them I was suicidal. They brought me to a locked room with lots of security, lots of police. They were very worried about a threat. I said, I'm no threat to you. I'm a threat to myself. I need help now. And they gave it to me because I asked for it because I took 110% responsibility for the fact that I have this brain disease and I have to fight it tooth and nail or I'm not going to be here. The last seven of my 10 psych ward stays, I walked into them on my own and said, I need to be here or I won't be here. I took responsibility for my brain. And that's the difference. And for all the people in Africa who are thinking that it's cowardice, stop. People who die by suicide are not selfish. They are not cowards. They know not what they're doing when they're doing it. They're in a desperate amount of lethal emotional pain. And they believe they have to die. They don't necessarily want to. Those are two categorically different things. They're beautiful people who need your help, kindness, and compassion. And they're struggling desperately. What they don't need is to be told what they're thinking is wrong. Millions upon millions of people around the world have suicidal ideation, actually more now than ever before in the history of the world. Let's be compassionate toward them. Yeah. Let's be empathetic. Let's be kind.
0: The voice that you're hearing right now belongs to the gentleman who 23 years ago stood on the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco at the age of 19 and jumped. He survived. It's a quite remarkable story. Kevin, do you believe in fate?
1: I believe in action. I believe that we all have the ability to give back to someone in pain and potentially help keep them here if they're having those thoughts. It doesn't mean uh, we necessarily give them advice. Sometimes it means we sit beside them, put our arm around their shoulder and say, I'm here to listen. Listen to understand, not to respond. I've got your back. Mm. Mm.
0: When, when we go through when we go through a, a an experience a traumatic experience whatever whatever it may be and we come out the other side and we we get called survivors or whatever it may be um whether that be in the mental health sphere whether that be survivors of domestic abuse whether that be people in addiction recovery whether that be people who have been adopted and whatever very often there is this you know our story becomes somebody else's Lifeline, but with that comes an awful lot of responsibility. So I noticed that you say that you still, to this day, suffer from suicidal ideation. What you haven't come on in, to the show and said is, and now I'm totally fine, and you just need to drink the Kool Aid and everything will be fine. Um, when you have those moments, Kevin, and I, I, I also experience them. But I think what the difference for me these days is that is exactly as you said is that I have have thoughts I do not need to action them and as as you say right there that you know you will never die by your own hand no matter how bad it gets and you know let's be honest it gets bad I too now am able after sort of 15 16 years of of recovery and, and and mental health work I'm able to say yeah some days there are days where I'm in that frame of mind but i also know i will never die by my own hand it's an incredibly empowering position to be in but but the stuff still is there right can you talk mm-hmm. just very briefly to that The the fact that you still have those feelings the fact that you need to turn to margaret and say i need help now
1: yeah and and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that and i outline all that in my new book the art of being broken ah. Storytelling story his lives uh this is an
0: go and buy it,
1: please, folks. Please, go and buy this book. Yeah, the audio book comes out pretty soon, so check that out. But, but look, I know how to defeat this pain. I know how to always stay alive from suicidal ideation. I know how to teach it to other people. But these thoughts still come about on a regular basis, and I defy them by looking in the mirror and saying, "No, I deserve to be here until my natural end. I'm a good person." I deserve this life. I am worthy. Every negative, inner critical thought I have, I reverse it to the exact opposite. If I say to myself, you're ugly, I say you're beautiful. If I say you're stupid, I say you're smart or you're a genius. I reverse it. What we recite about ourselves, what we repeat about ourselves, that's what we will believe. Mm-hmm. If we recite and repeat negative, hateful, spiteful, horrible things to ourselves, that's all we're going to believe. Conversely, if we recite and repeat the opposite, that's what we'll believe. What is every major faith built upon? Recite a prayer or chant, repeat a prayer or chant, believe said prayer or chant. It's, it's scientific. It affects your brain and allows you to retrain the brain to stay right here. And it's been very difficult to live with chronic thoughts of suicide for 23 years, but not impossible. Mm. I'm sitting before you right now having this conversation with Sarah Jane. I get to be here, and so do you. And if you perceive life a little bit differently, your perception and your perspective are your reality. If you perceive yourself to be a victim or a sufferer, that is all you will ever be. Even if you've been victimized or you have suffered, if you choose that path, you'll never break free from it. Conversely, if you choose to be the hero of your own journey, you can not only survive the pain you experience, you can thrive. Yeah. And that's where I am today. I'm thriving despite of my pain because it's a choice. It's a choice. Now, I know it's not simple for everyone. Yeah, I know there are war-torn countries where people literally are suffering every day. I recognize that. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the person who struggles with a brain health matter. Your brain is an organ. It too can become diseased. I'm talking about a person who can shift their perspective and how they perceive the world to change their life.
0: Kevin, we are out of time, but please just remind our listeners of uh, your uh, second book, I believe. This is number
1: two, right? This is number three, three. The oh, I'm crack- so sorry. Okay. That's okay. There's crack, not broken. There's the third rail in my mania I became, and there's uh, the art of being broken. How storytelling saves lives. And this one is really special because there are seven contributing authors uh, that tell their stories in the book. Cause I want to be a part of sharing stories from around the world that are of great triumph over incredible adversity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Kevin, it has been an absolute treat and an honour to have you on the show this morning. I have wanted to speak to you for many, many, many years. And then I was given a platform where that becomes possible. Um, Every day you are saving lives. And I think that is incredible. And I want to say thank you for that. I want to say thank you for giving me hope when things have been bad Um, and for the people who will be listening in now, um, even if you just touch and plant a seed in the brain of one person that has changed a life. And so we thank you for your time uh, today. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Kevin Hines, to have you on Weekend Breakfast.